This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 24th of February. Today, we discuss Singapore's new carbon price and how it factors in the country's accelerated timeline to reach net zero emissions. Instead of in the second half of the century, Singapore now wants to reach net zero by or around mid-century. And to help it achieve this, it is raising its carbon tax from the current $5 per tonne of emissions to between $50 and $80 per tonne by 2030. This increase will be done in phases. It will first go up to $25 per tonne in 2024, then $45 per tonne in 2026, before reaching $50 to $80 per tonne by 2030. How significant is this? We ask OCBC Bank economist Howie Lee. Welcome to the show, Howie. Hey, Audrey. How are you? So, Howie, when the carbon tax was announced, many people were surprised. Um, after all, the government did say that when the tax was first announced in 2018, it will only reach between $10 and $15 per tonne by 2030. And the announcements were way higher than that. So what was your reaction when you first heard the latest budget announcement? I was uh, positively surprised. I think I left an audible wow you know, in, the, in the office. Uh, I think all my carbon group chats on WhatsApp were buzzing immediately. Uh, no one expected it, right? No one. I, I thought if it had gone to 30 bucks by 2030, it would have been a very strong statement uh, from a climate preservation point of view. Uh, but wow, $25 in 2024, $45 in 26, then 50 80 by 2030. Uh, that's a statement if you need one. Uh, to give you a bit of context, right? By 2024, we should have the highest carbon tax in Asia, overtaking South Korea. By 2026, we would be way above the current global median. And by 2030, I think we would be one of the highest in the world. So I think the surprise kicker is that we went from seemingly passive, you know, $5 a ton, straight up to the leaderboard. I think any climate observer would say that's a good thing. And, and that's why I couldn't help but say wow when I saw it. So can you explain to us, I mean, you did mention other countries like South Korea. So what are the current uh, carbon tax rates um, for, the, for the Asia-Pacific region? Well, generally, they are around $20 or below for, for Asia. As a whole in Asia, they are still lagging compared to the West. The West are more developed in this sense. They have higher carbon tax rates. They have an ETS market in place. Uh, and they have a very strong understanding and un- uh, rationale of why they are doing this. Uh, Asia is still catching on, but I have no doubts that we will be there in time. So how we can you explain exactly how a carbon tax helps to reduce emissions? How is this higher tax going to help Singapore achieve its accelerated z- uh, net zero timeline? But David, there are two parts to this, right? So the first and natural consequence is, as any economist will tell you, is that it raises the cost of production. Right? So whether you are a steel plant, whether you are a cement manufacturer, a power plant, uh, as carbon tax goes up, you are forced to think about how to use your energy more efficiently or you switch to a cleaner power source altogether. All right, so that's first. Uh, the second one, which is often overlooked, uh, but equally important, if not more important, is that the revenue from carbon tax should be continuously channeled into investing in R&D for clean energy. Uh, we have ideas on the end goal, right? We have, you know, using hydrogen, solar farms, uh, but we need to invest in R&D to do that because we need to bring down the cost of production uh, on the cleaner alternatives. 
And credit to that, Minister Lawrence Wong did come out to say that the extra revenue from the high income tax rates uh, will go to those purposes. And I think uh, that is the right thing to do. But how has such a tax fared in other countries uh, in terms of getting them to cut emissions? And has it proven to be effective? Yeah, you are you are asking an economist a question on tax effectiveness. And I'm going to forward this podcast to my finance professor after this, after this time. But yes, it's a theoretical given that higher taxes means lower consumption. All right, but don't take it from me. I take it from the pros. Right? IMF and OECD have done a lot of research on this front and they have said that it is effective. Okay, but all that said, I want to caution and emphasize that carbon pricing should not be the cornerstone of a climate policy response. Right? All carbon pricing does really is to frame climate change as a market failure. Uh, but climate change is really so much more than that. It is, at the root of it, a social technical system failure. All right. For example, you you can't tax emissions on a gasoline car and expect the problem to go away. Right? At the end of the day, you need electric vehicles. And then with that, you need a whole reconfiguration of infrastructure, city planning, road planning, etc. Uh, that is the main cause to tackle climate change. All right. The carbon pricing is the very important entree that will weed the appetite of such a response. So that's a very good point, Howie. And I want to ask you more about how feasible is it for you know large emitters in Singapore who are liable for the carbon tax? Um, how feasible is it for them to reduce their carbon footprint, considering that you know we face difficulties in harnessing solar or switching to other forms of renewables? Well, Audrey, I, I think I will frame that question back to you. All right, how practical then would it be for emitters to continue their operations, right, with no regard for climate change, okay, whether it be in Singapore or somewhere else? It's a matter of corporate will, yes. And appropriate carbon price gets that uh, will moving into gear. Uh, but more so than that, I don't think we can continuously hide behind the excuse of you know, accessibility indefinitely. All right? To me, not keeping up with times, not recognizing that change is probably more foolhardy than trying to think out of the box and, and think of creative solutions for this problem. And again, all credit to the government. They have been trying their best to think out of the box. Right? They have floating solar panels. Uh, you have importing of clean electricity from Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, the use of hydrogen coming up potentially. It can be done. I think it's a matter of will. Yeah, very good point, Howie. I think we need to forward this podcast to more than just your finance professor. Please do, please do. Many people forget that the purpose of a carbon tax or carbon price is more for the longer term goal of reducing emissions. But of course, the other side of the equation are consumers. So what um, will higher carbon tax mean for them? And in countries with a higher tax, do consumers end up bearing the brunt of it? No, I've been I've been asked um, this question over and over again. So I'm going to bring out my economist hat here and put it on again. Okay, so climate change, as we have mentioned earlier, is partially a market failure. All right, and with market failures comes negative externalities. All right, meaning it's a bad thing. Most of the time, it's costly. It happens without it being intended to have happened. All right, so a steel plant, for example doesn't go out to intend to pollute its surroundings, but it just wants to produce good steel. But unfortunately, it does produce emissions in the course of it making steel. Uh, now, the jury is still out whether higher carbon taxes would lead to higher consumption prices, but let's say it does, all right? Let's say it does. I strongly believe that the cost that you pay in exchange for cleaner air, for lesser climate shocks, lesser tsunamis, lesser strains on farms and arable land, is far way lesser uh, than the cost of having to face these emission problems. In other words, the reduction of the externality far outweighs whatever extra cost that you have to bear in the short to medium term. 
think actually everybody recognizes that. I think you recognize that, David. You recognize that, Audrey. The problem is that everybody wants the other guy to pay. And I think this is what we have to correct. The tragedy of the comments. Exactly. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. So another thing that emerged during the budget is that from 2024, large emitters in Singapore who have to pay the carbon tax can offset 5% of their taxable emissions by buying high-quality international carbon credits. So that's a lot of jargon. Can you explain what that means exactly? Uh, I, I will use a mathematical example for, for this. So let's say you have, uh, let's say you exceed your baseline by a thousand tons. Alright, so you pay carbon taxes on a thousand tons. $25 a ton means you have to pay $25,000. Alright, but the revised rule as of budget 22 says you can use, uh, 5%, uh, offsets for that. So that would equate to 50 tons, right? And then the remaining you still have to pay carbon tax. That 50 tons, you can go out to the international carbon credit market, purchase offsets and cover your carbon footprints. So basically, these international carbon credits are projects out there that have been done uh, that's positive for the climate. For example, a reforestation project uh, in Brazil, uh, they get certified credits, they sell it to emitters for a sum of money. The emitters then can use this uh, credit to cover their carbon footprint and, and, and claim a reduced uh, net emission level. So as a large emitter, why would I be interested in buying carbon credits to offset my emissions? Are these carbon credits going to be cheaper than the carbon tax? All right. Firstly, from a pure numbers standpoint, it makes economical sense. All right. uh, let's say today's nature-based credits are going for around $15 uh, per credit, which is $15 a tonne. Uh, and that is way lesser than the $25 tax that, that will come into place in 2024. So from a purely economical standpoint, it makes sense to max out these credits. Okay, but this is not the point, and neither is it the spirit. Okay, I think why anyone should think about credits is that a lot of these carbon credits are actually very meaningful. All right? A lot of these projects do impact society from a bottom-up level. A, a forestation project, for example, right? It tends to employ people in nearby settlements to patrol the area, giving them employment. Uh, you could be providing clean drinking water to villagers. You could be uh, giving women and children a free education, what we call SDG goals, right? And since climate change is at the end of the day a global issue, I think it makes sense for us to look out of our boundaries from time to time. Now, 5% doesn't sound like a lot. So what are your estimates for the local demand for carbon credits generated because of this provision? Well, um, I, I won't bore you with the math, David, but uh, I think it would, I estimate it to be around 2 million credits a year. Uh, that's quite substantial. Uh, for context futures, the futures market on similar credits at a grand total of 15,000 credits in the whole of 2021. So coming in with 2 million, if I'm proven correct in my uh, estimates, uh, that would be a substantial demand coming in. So Howie, um, can you elaborate a bit on that? Uh, why will allowing local limiters uh, to buy credits to be a boost for the domestic market? Any well-functioning commodity market is always made up of two layers. Uh, the first is the base demand, right? From the actual physical guys, right? They have a need for it. These guys tend to have uh, a big trading volume because of their needs. Uh, but their request tends to be very chunky, uh, tends to be difficult to match. Uh, so you have that second layer. Uh, you can call them speculators, you can call them liquidity providers, all right? but uh, these are the investors. They have a view on the market and they want to invest in it. Their orders are smaller than the physical guys, uh, 
but their orders help to lubricate the market, right? So think of the physical guys as putting like, big pebbles in a jar, right? You fill it very quickly, but there's a lot of gaps between the pebbles. And then you have the investors who are coming in as fine sand to fill the, to fill these gaps. And that provides a very well functioning market. Uh, for example, your oil, your oil market, right? It's a very well functioning market. You have, you have the big oil majors there. And then you have a lot of investors in the market as well. So it's the same with carbon, right? You need the base demand from these emitters. And then, of course, you need the investors coming in to lubricate the market uh, with additional liquidity. And with a well-functioning carbon market, ample liquidity, no shocks, I think that provides a springboard for people to look at the carbon market as something that's reliable, something that is worthy of their considerations. And that would be the first step, that entree to initiate the main cost that will come in later. And, and just to follow up, the, the 5% level might seem low. Is there a, a suggestion or a possibility that the government might increase that allowance to like 10 or even 15% over this decade? I have no view on that. But generally speaking, across the world, the amount of offsets that any emitter can use is gradually shrinking. So 5% is a small number, yes. I, if I'm not wrong, California does have something similar. I can't remember if it's, it's 5% or if it's 10%. Uh, but it's along the same principles. And as the carbon market evolves and it matures more and more, uh, they tend to remove the offset market away, uh, the use of offsets in the actual emission uh, reduction and use the ETS market and carbon tax instead. So for example, your European ETS has now moved on from uh, using the Kyoto CDM credits uh, to now a purely ETS market. And I think that, that that is a strategy. I think that's the spirit as well. Uh, that you have to wean these people off using offsets and then th- think clearly, properly of how you want to reduce your gross emission levels. So thanks, Howie, for joining us today and explaining all about the carbon tax. Great. Thank you so much, Howie. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.